we have an exciting announcement to make. On June 3rd, we'll be adding a new segment to the podcast, Uncommon Valor. We will still cover Marine Corps history and traditions leading up to the present day, but this segment is in addition to the regular show, and it'll give us an opportunity to explore the human element of history. Our first interview is with Katie Cook. Not only does she have a fascinating story about flying combat missions in Afghanistan, but she is the first female Blue Angels pilot. If you or anyone you know is interested in an interview, visit historyofthemarinecorps.com. Under Reach Out to Us, you'll find a link to the Veterans History Project. Fill out the form and we'll get back to you. You don't need to be a Medal of Honor recipient or a Blue Angels pilot. Every Marine is welcome. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 42 of History of the Marine Corps, Old Ironsides. Our last episode kicked off the War of 1812. We started off discussing why the United States declared war with Great Britain and reviewed some politics, policies, American public opinion, and covered what the Marine Corps has been up to after Presley O'Bannon and his Marines left Dern. This episode gets into a few battles. We'll briefly talk about the Army's failure to invade Canada and move into a famous battle at sea involving the Constitution and the Guerriere. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. In June 1812, Napoleon shifted his focus to Russia. The two countries were allies during most of the Napoleonic Wars, but due to Tsar Alexander's decision to stop complying with the embargo, known as a continental system, Napoleon decided to teach the Tsar a lesson. Napoleon lined up 600,000 men on the Russian border. The Tsar was only able to muster a third of that number. It seemed inevitable that Russia would lose the war. President Madison saw Napoleon's invasion as an opportunity. While Europe was busy defending against Napoleon, the United States would set its sight on British territories in Canada. Our neighbor to the north wasn't well protected. Madison believed that a victory in Canada, coupled with Napoleon's attack on Russia, would encourage Britain to stop impressing American citizens and renegotiate the acts. However, there were a few problems with Madison's plan. The United States still didn't have a navy that was able to compete with the British fleet. At the time, the United States Navy had about 20 ships. Seven were being repaired and not in operation. Compare that to the 1,000 British warships and you could see how the United States was at a disadvantage. He decided to take a page out of our previous war with Britain and use privateers. Like the American Revolution, Madison would deploy hundreds of privateer ships to harass British commerce vessels. We touched on privateers in many of the episodes covering the American Revolution, but episode 28, The War Comes to an End, breaks down the role of privateer marines and how they contributed to the war. With Canadian forces attacked on land, and British commerce occupied at sea, it seemed like an easy victory for the United States. 
But the U.S. Army was less prepared than the Navy. They were small, haven't engaged in a real battle since the American Revolution, and commanded by generals that were way past their prime. This plan was controversial for Madison. Although the president denied he was aligned with Napoleon or dependent on him for any decision regarding the United States, the Federalists used this as an opportunity to bash him. Federalists argued that Napoleon was a much more significant threat than Great Britain. If the United States didn't align with Britain, Napoleon would target America next. Federalists claimed that Madison was a lackey for Napoleon, but all of this was rhetoric from the party. Madison wasn't a pawn for Napoleon. In fact, Napoleon was attacking American commerce vessels for providing resources to British forces in Spain. But Madison did see Napoleon's invasion as an opportunity. And as Russia prepared to defend, the United States positioned her army to attack Canada. The War Department was not prepared for this assault. They were undersized and hadn't experienced war in decades. The United States was desperate for men, and on February 7, 1812, President Madison authorized a full pardon to men who deserted from the Army and the Marine Corps. Land forces were sent to over 20 different locations, which made an already small army smaller. Dr. William Eustace was the Secretary of War at the time. Now 59 years old, Eustace served in the Continental Army during the American Revolution, but as a physician. He helped wounded soldiers during the Battle of Bunker Hill, but Eustace didn't command any units. After the war, he changed his career to politics became a strong Republican ally for Madison and Jefferson, and was appointed to Secretary of War. But his appointment was more political, and he did not have the qualifications to lead the military into a war. Nor did he have the resources. The War Department was made up of eight clerks, and most of them were handling skirmishes with Native Americans and dealing with other army obligations. On top of an inexperienced Secretary of War, the army had a morale issue as well. The pay was low, and the political division on how to handle Britain caused a lot of problems with recruiting and retaining men. Most Americans didn't want to serve, and those who did didn't have the resources for an attack on Canada. The army didn't have sufficient artillery, food, or uniforms. Congress's usual go-to was to raise taxes, but the public didn't support the war, so this wasn't an option. They refused to raise taxes, and the United States Armed Forces needed to make do with what they had. Madison had a unique view to this problem. He believed that avoiding conflict due to lack of supplies and low readiness was unacceptable. We should go to war, and those resources would arrive when battles commenced. But there was a flaw in Madison's reasoning. He was expecting the invasion of Canada would entice Britain into a negotiation, and thought this would be over by Christmas. Six months was all he planned for this war. While the Federalists opposed this move, Madison and most Republicans felt that invading Canada would be a straightforward victory. At the time, I probably would have agreed with them. Canada's population was less than 500,000, and most were scattered throughout the country. The U.S. had over 7.6 million. Britain governed the area, but they were not liked, 
and forcing Britain out of the territory seemed like an easy task. With most of Britain's forces in Russia, West Indies, India, Ireland, Portugal, Sicily, and Spain, Canada only had 7,000 British soldiers to defend the entire border. And they were spread as far west as Detroit. Everyone who supported Madison's decision believed that the United States would be able to take Canada with relative ease. Even Thomas Jefferson said, quote, The acquisition of Canada this year, as far as the neighborhood of Quebec, will be a mere matter of marching and will give us experience for the attack of Halifax next, and the final expulsion of England from the American continent. Many Americans leading the country's expansion to the West agreed with Madison's decision to invade Canada, but they had a different motivation. They were convinced that the British were operating out of Canada, providing Native American tribes with weapons and provoking them to attack U.S. citizens. The United States push to conform Native Americans gave rise to two great leaders, Tecumseh and his brother, Tenskwatawa. The United States was attempting to change Native American life in multiple ways, one of which was convincing tribes to abandon their way of life and become farmers. Tecumseh was against this change. He united tribes, put a halt to selling more land to the United States, and rejected abandoning their traditions. Tecumseh gained a lot of support in the fall of 1809, when William Harrison, the governor of Indiana, signed a deal where he bought 3 million acres of land for $5,250. Harrison supported President Jefferson's policy of converting Native Americans into farmers and sending those who resisted west of the Mississippi River. Shady deals and the displacement of Native Americans caused Tecumseh's army to grow and convince them that the alignment with the British was the best move for all tribes. On June 1st, Madison gave a speech to Congress and urged them to declare war on Great Britain. In his statement, he claimed Britain threatened the U.S. as an independent and neutral nation. He expressed his outrage for harassing commerce vessels along the U.S. coastline and spoke against the practice of impressing Americans. Madison said, quote, American citizens, under the safeguard of public law and their national flag, have been torn from their country and everything dear to them. They've been dragged on board ships of war of a foreign nation and exposed, under the severest of their discipline, to be exiled to the most distant and deadly climes, to risk their lives in the battles of the oppressors, and to be melancholy instruments of taking away those of their brethren. Unquote. Most members of Congress voted in favor of a war with Great Britain. This decision worsened the country's political division, and eight days after Madison signed the formal declaration of war, a Federalist governor, Caleb Strong of Massachusetts, called for a public fast to protest. In Baltimore, a crowd of Republicans attacked a Federalist newspaper by breaking in, wrecking their printing press, and destroying the building itself. The paper would be up and running again five days later, but the controversy between the printing press and the Republicans would continue to escalate. A Republican mob tried to attack the newspaper owner, which resulted in a member of the crowd being shot and killed. Republicans would retaliate by attempting to buy an artillery piece. 
The Federalists were moved to a local jail for protection, but the mob broke in and clubbed and stabbed nine men. One man was tarred, feathered, and set on fire. The crowd even cornered a general in the Massachusetts militia and stabbed him to death. Federalists condemned the murder and accused Madison of trying to silence any opposition to the war, but this was simply not true. Madison and most of the country were disgusted by this mob's behavior, and their actions had an opposite effect than they intended. Instead of shutting down Federalist views, opposing newspapers remained open for the rest of the war. They were overly critical of Madison and his decision to go to war. But the decision had been made, and the United States was now at war with Great Britain. On land, the Marines would serve alongside the Army in a few battles, but most action by Marines would take place at sea. As we mentioned during our episodes on the Quasi-War and the First Barbary War, battles were fought entirely by Marines and the Navy. Besides the occasional skirmish with Native Americans, the Army hadn't seen war since the American Revolution. Any experienced general was well past his prime, and the War Department did not have the experience to organize an attack against Canada. The first battles of the war were a catastrophe. Arguably, one of the greatest mistakes the United States made during the beginning of the war was their communication. Instead of using a messenger to communicate with army units, the U.S. government used the common post. It took weeks and sometimes months for units to receive word that the U.S. declared war on Great Britain. Communication has always been one of the most vital components to winning a war. A successful military needs to know what's going on, but unfortunately, this wasn't the case in 1812. As the common posts slowly made their way to American commanders, British commanders already knew that war was declared. This resulted in one of the first defeats of the war on Mackinac Island. This fort was important, and it controlled the strategic territory between Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. In July 1812, British and Native American forces assembled on the high grounds behind Fort Mackinac. They sent a messenger to Lieutenant Porter Hanks, the commander of the fort, and demanded surrender. Hanks had no idea the United States was at war, and he was not prepared to fight. The fort had 60 men, and they were no match for the hundreds of British and Native American forces. Hank was concerned that fighting would result in a massacre of all his men, so he surrendered. Within minutes after complying with the demand, the U.S. flag was lowered and the Union Jack was raised over the American fort. Losing this critical piece of land, without a single shot fired, had a definite impact on the opening of the war. Not only would the United States have to change their strategy a month into the war, but the morale of the American public was also negatively impacted. But despite the loss of this fort, Madison still wanted to go forward with his plan to attack Canada. The idea was to split forces and invade Canada in three locations. From west to east, one army would leave Detroit and enter Canada between Lake Huron and Lake Erie. The second would cross the Niagara River between Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, and the third would leave New York and head towards Montreal. This plan was ambitious, 
Splitting up an already small force and attacking in multiple different locations was a gamble. Unfortunately, the War Department's organization hadn't approved, and the invasion was extraordinarily chaotic and leadership was incompetent. Another big mistake was disregarding the lack of roads. This terrain wasn't the U.S. we all know and love today. If you've been to the Northeast, you'll understand the challenge of navigating an army through the forest. The vegetation can be thick, and without roads, it's almost impossible to march an army, especially when it involves towing artillery and supplies. The logistics would usually look towards waterways, but the British controlled most of that as well. To add insult to injury, local American towns were not aware that a war was going on. This made coordination harder for the army. Defending British forces were much smaller than the attacking Americans, but their coordination and communication gave them the upper hand. The British had some militia and about 1,200 British soldiers. The number was small, but the soldiers were experienced. The U.S. Army had almost no veterans. The shortage of experience wasn't necessarily due to a lack of war. Most American citizens at the time did not support the idea of a standing army. The country relied heavily on the militia, but every militia general was either noticeably young and never fought in a war, or incredibly old and was not in the best shape to lead an army. Madison chose experience over youth and assigned the senior generals to command the attack. While the U.S. Army was preparing, the commander of British forces in Canada, Isaac Brock, was meeting with Tecumseh and allying with the tribes he had assembled to defend the Native American way of life. The two men had an instant connection and agreed to attack the Americans immediately. The new alliance attacked an American fort in Detroit. William Hull, a once respected soldier during the American Revolution, oversaw the fort. After years of drinking, he was not the same soldier he once was. When the attack commenced, Hull fell apart. He hid and was found drinking heavily and smoking. This cowardice move wrecked the morale of his men. They hadn't even engaged with the enemy yet, and their commander was cowering in fear. Hull's only response was to send a letter to the British asking for three days to prepare for the battle. I can't think of a scenario where an attacking force would give up their advantage and agree to three additional days for their enemy to prepare. This shouldn't come as a surprise, but Brock denied Hull's request of three days and gave him three hours to surrender the fort, or everyone inside will be killed. It seemed like Hull's decision was already made. After a couple of minutes, Hull surrendered the fort despite having the larger military force. It was the first time in United States history where a white flag was raised over an American city and surrendered to a foreign army. Brock allowed the militiamen to return home and took the U.S. Army troops as prisoner. Hull was marched down the streets of Canada in disgrace and eventually sent home as well. An entire army was lost due to Brock's decision, and the American public's morale took another hit. Hull was court-martialed for cowardice and neglect of duty. He was found guilty and sentenced to death by firing squad. However, 
Madison remitted his execution due to his heroic service during the American Revolution, but he still supported the decision of cowardice and neglect of duty. Now that Detroit was down, only two fronts remained for the invasion of Canada. The Americans positioned on the Niagara River was led by Stephen Van Rensselaer, one of the richest men in New York, a great politician, but he had no military experience whatsoever. Isaac Brock personally led the British Army, but his defending forces weren't all trained, experienced British soldiers. There were a small number of soldiers, but most of the army was made up of escaped slaves, Canadian farm kids, and a few hundred Grand River warriors. Van Rensselaer had a formidable force, but his tactics and coordination were a mess. For one, he sent his troops directly towards the British forces at Queenston. American soldiers had to jump on a boat and try to row a quarter of a mile across quick-moving water straight into the British Army. Not one of these men had ever crossed the Niagara River before. But this wasn't the only hurdle. Again, the United States had superior forces. With almost 1,000 Army regulars and 2,650 militia, the U.S. should have had an easy time beating the 1,300 defenders. Unfortunately, only 13 boats were available to transport the troops, and once they reached shore, they had to take a hill. Brock knew that if the Americans captured that hill and seized Queenston, defending northern Canada would be almost impossible. So he grabbed his sword and ran to the top of the hill for all Americans to see. But by this time, the first wave of ships crossed the river, and men were advancing on the hill. An American soldier 60 feet away saw Brock. He took aim and fired a shot. Brock was hit in the heart and died instantly. This infuriated British troops. Although the Americans had the higher ground, Native Americans were able to flank them, catching them by surprise. Many Americans were killed. A few tried to escape by jumping off the cliff, and the rest just surrendered. The U.S. soldiers still across the river could hear the screams and war cries of the Native Americans and they refused to help. They left their fellow Americans to die. That's two of the American fronts stopped. With this failure, Van Rensselaer's army was given to Brigadier General Alexander Smith. And before the third invasion took place, he planned a raid to prepare for a future invasion of Upper Canada. This time, Smith would call on Marines and Navy to help. The plan was to cross over into Canada and spike the British artillery at Red House. This move would allow the Americans to advance on the territory without the risk of artillery fire. Seventy Marines and sailors joined forces with the Army and attacked. They were able to capture the British fort, spike the cannons, burn the quarters, and return home. Henry Dearborn led the third major invasion into Canada. His men called him Granny Dearborn due to his age. He wasn't in the best shape and required his hot water bottle every night for his rheumatism. Dearborn had 4,000 men and sent them to Montreal as planned. But during their march, the unit was so disorganized that they sometimes fired at each other thinking the other side was the enemy. When they reached their destination, 
two-thirds of his troops refused to cross the border. They never attacked, and Dearborn just called off the invasion. Most battles during the first year were a disaster. The United States didn't lose because the British had superior forces or better tactics. The disorganization, inexperience, and mistake after mistake caused the U.S. Army and the United States to be humiliated. Madison thought invading Canada would be easy, but he was wrong. However, Madison and military leaders didn't have the same confidence about beating the British at sea. They knew the power of the British naval fleet, and they were hesitant about engaging in full-out maritime warfare. But despite insurmountable odds, the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps were able to perform their role at sea remarkably well. Marines were part of all naval battles and participated in their victories as well as their defeats. On board the naval vessels, they served as musketmen and in some instances manned the cannons. Marines played a pivotal role in leading raiding parties onto British ships as well as defending against raids. The effectiveness of the Marines is described by a Canadian historian who wrote, quote, What gave the United States a great advantage when the vessels approached was the presence of Marines on the foretop, who made deadly use of their weapons. As a rule, they were admirable shots, unquote. He's not alone, and many other historians agree with this statement. The first real success of war didn't happen on land. It happened in the sea. On August 19, 1812, Isaac Hull, the commander of the Constitution, was sailing near Halifax, Nova Scotia. One of his lookouts spotted a sail. Hull gave chase, and an hour and a half later, confirmed it was the British frigate Guerriere. The British captain was a young James Dakers. Although he was only 28 years old, he already distinguished himself in previous battles. He also came from a long line of sailors, and his father and uncle were both admirals in the Royal Navy. The Guerriere was one of the best frigates in the Royal Navy, and even though she was smaller than the American ship, Dakers believed he had a fighting chance. On board were 10 impressed Americans, and Dakers was so convinced in his ability to defeat the Constitution that when the Americans refused to take up arms, he permitted them to head below deck until the battle was over. The size difference between the two ships was not small. The Constitution had 456 men on board and carried 56 guns. The Guerriere only had a crew of 272 with 49 guns. The broadside weight of the Constitution was 762 pounds compared to the British's 550. At 1500, a Marine Corps drummer gave the signal and everybody on board rushed towards their battle stations. In charge of the Marines were First Lieutenants William Bush and John Conti. At 1705, the Guerriere fired a broadside, but the shot failed to reach the target. The British fired a second volley, and this time, two cannonballs managed to hit the Constitution, but they bounced off due to her thick sides. Apparently, one of the Americans heard a British sailor say, Huzzah! Her sides are made of iron. The Constitution's sides weren't made of iron. The planking was just built thicker, but this earned her the nickname Old Ironsides. 
The Constitution would occasionally fire a shot, but Hull's focus was closing in on the Guerriere. By 1800, the Constitution was 10 yards away from the enemy. He ordered the men to fire, and an onslaught of devastating broadsides, composed of cannonballs and grape shot, hit the Guerriere. The first attack caused a lot of damage, and within 15 minutes, the British ship's mizzenmast, mainyard, hull, and sails were demolished. This damage caused the Guerriere to be immobile. During the battle, Marine sharpshooters provided a constant shower of musket balls into the deck of the ship, stopping raids and men from operating the ship's guns. The two ships became entangled, and Dakers formed a boarding party. Despite being outnumbered, this was the last chance of victory for the British. In response, Hull called upon the Marines to form a boarding party as well. With the Marines assembled, Lieutenant Bush, with his sword in hand, turned towards the captain and said, Shall I board, sir? Those would be his last words. A musket ball entered into his left cheekbone and passed through the back of his head, killing him instantly. His death made him the first Marine officer to fall since the American Revolution. After Bush was shot, the two ships suddenly separated and made boarding impossible. Dakers understood his fate. He called his officers, and everyone agreed that continuing to resist would be an unnecessary waste of lives. But with his mass destroyed, he was unable to lower his colors. Dakers fired a gun leeward, which indicated surrender. Hull sent one of his lieutenants to the Guerriere and asked if the enemy needed any assistance. The lieutenant returned with Dakers' sword, but Hull refused to accept it out of respect for such a courageous commander. Dakers was shot in the back by a Marine sharpshooter. Hull brought him on board for a drink and to get patched up. Hull also ordered his crew to go on board the Guerriere, escort the prisoners to the Constitution, get their baggage from the sinking ship, and tend to their wounded. The Guerriere had 15 men killed, 63 wounded, and 24 missing. The Constitution had seven killed and seven wounded, which includes Marine Private Francis Mullen, who was shot in the ankle. Dakers later said, quote, I feel it my duty to state that the conduct of Captain Hall and his officers to our men has been that of a brave enemy, the greatest care being taken to prevent our men losing the smallest trifle, and the greatest attention being paid to the wounded, who through the attention and skills of Mr. John Irvine, Surgeon, I hope will do well. Unquote. Irvine was the Guerriere's doctor. Dakers didn't mention Amos Evans, the Constitution surgeon, who tended to the wounded as well. Unfortunately, they couldn't save the British ship, and Hull ordered it burnt. The country's response to this battle was incredible. As the Constitution pulled into port, the Washington artillery fired salute after salute out of respect for the victory. Americans assembled at the wharf, rooftops, and nearby ships just to see the Constitution pull in. Americans cheered and applauded for her success. Even Federalists celebrated the victory. Unlike the Republicans, Federalists always supported a large navy. And this battle supported their case. 
Lieutenant Conti was recognized as well. Quote, After the fall of Lieutenant Bush, Lieutenant Conti of the Corps took command of the Marines and his conduct was that of a brave, good officer. And the Marines behaved with great coolness and courage during the action. Unquote. Lieutenant Bush was a well-respected Marine and many people had a lot of good things to say about him. Hull stated, quote, In him, our country has lost a valuable and brave officer. Unquote. The Commandant stated, quote, Beloved while living and in his death has shown a character perfectly military to imitate, and his memory will be cherished as long as heroic acts are valued. Unquote. The Secretary of Navy stated that he died nobly and as a soldier would wish to die in the arm of victory. Congress awarded a silver medal to the nearest male relative of Lieutenant Bush. It was to represent the gallantry and merit of the deceased officer in whom his country has sustained a loss much to be regretted. One interesting fact about this battle was the case of a woman serving on board the Constitution as a Marine, Louisa Baker. There's debate on whether Baker existed. A book titled The Female Marine was written in 1815 in her name. She discussed her actions during the War of 1812 and described Lieutenant Bush as, quote, a most humane and experienced officer, unquote. Thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.